Hi, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Today's episode is a live event that I did with legendary investor Alan Patrickoff. Alan is one of the godfathers of venture capital. He just wrote a new book called No Red Lights, and I had him at P&T to talk about it, and this was the conversation we had. Um, I'm Bradley. Uh, this is my bookstore, and it is an incredible honor to be here with Alan Patrickoff and one of my heroes in venture capital. So uh, when I heard he wrote a book, uh, I harangued him, and he let us uh, do an event with him. And uh, I, usually someone else who's more qualified gets to moderate these things, but I, I, caught, I pulled rank on this one and said I was doing it. I asked you to moderate. Ah, there you go. Um, so a uh, couple things. One is we are also recording this um, for my podcast, Firewall. So if you do choose to ask a question or whatever else, just understand that you'll be on the podcast. Hopefully that's okay. Um, and I've got like four hours worth of questions for Alan, but I'll try to keep it to, you know, 45 minutes or so and then turn it over to you guys for questions. And that's it. Any other preamble before we start? You want me to give a preamble? No, do you need one? Is there no. any, any rules that you need to cover before we get going? No, I, I, we're good. You, All right. Whatever you want. Good. I just have never talked that it would so high up. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's going to stretch my neck. I, I better get my neck brace out. <laughs> um, all right, so I have a lot of questions. But the first one to start with is, so you went to Ohio State. You decided Brandeis wasn't for you. You didn't get to Princeton. And it sounds like you had a really entrepreneurial and fun experience at Ohio State based on what you wrote in the book. Um, but then for a long time now, you've lived in this Manhattan bubble where things like, you know, going to elite schools is considered all important. Given just kind of all the experience you've had of where you went to school, where you've lived for the last 50 years in that world, does it matter where you go to college? No, I get asked that question all the time, Brad. Uh, particularly, I've got seven grandchildren, so they think about that. Uh, I personally feel it, it has some significance for the first year or two, uh, because there is a brand uh, in getting out of school that kind of, you know, people see Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and then Ohio State, they tend to go that direction, I think. Uh, but after the second year, or the, certainly after your second job, no one really focuses on that in my opinion, after that. And, and as I always say at the end of that, my response, I've done pretty well coming from Ohio State. Yeah, I think, I think you did just fine. Um, so there's a bunch of really good stories in the book, really funny one about Mario Puzo that I did double take on. But um, the Warren Buffett, Bill Gates one is the best one by far. Would, would you mind telling the story? Well, the story is that I, uh, one of the companies we invested in was Johnny Rockets, which you may remember. There are not many around these days. It's kind of traded uh, hands a couple of times since we, uh, we invested. But uh, uh, Johnny Rockets had a board, and uh, uh, we had a very effective board. But one day I got a, a call from the CEO of the company, and he said, you won't believe the letter I got in the mail. Excuse me, I don't know if it was the mail or email. I can't remember. It was, I guess it was the 80s, so it probably was, probably was mail. And uh, he sent me a copy by fax. You remember fax machines? Uh, and uh, what it was was, dear Mr. Shevsky, I love your hamburgers. I go to Johnny Rockets all the time. And I'm giving the punchline away that I go with Bill Gates 
to play, I guess it was bridge, I can't remember what they played. Bridge, and uh, I'm not a Californian, so I don't know all the places. I think it's La Jolla or whatever, one of those fancy places they go, and they would go out regularly to play, uh, I guess it was bridge. Uh, and afterwards, they used to always go to Johnny Rockets to have uh, a hamburger and a milkshake. And he then puts in parentheses, I love the strawberry milkshakes. Uh, close parentheses. And then he goes on, uh, I'm not asking for any special treatment. I don't want a discount or anything else. But I really was upset the other day when Bill Gates pulled out a Johnny Rockets VIP card. Uh, and I don't have a VIP, I don't have a VIP card. Would you please send me a VIP card? I promise not to ask you for any discount or anything else. So that was the uh, Bill Gates story. That, and the funny part was, uh, the next day after I got this well, letter, you haven't said who, who. I don't oh, it was Ron Warren Buffett. <laughs> Sorry, Warren Buffett. Uh, the next day I saw him because he was speaking at the New York Public Library breakfast. I know him because he went to Columbia Business School. He was a year ahead of me. And uh, uh, we were talking. I said, I know, Warren, you love hamburgers. How do you know? I said, I got a copy of the letter you said to uh, uh, Mike Shumsky. And he said, I really would like them to open up in Omaha. He said, we really need that there. And I said, great, we'll talk about it. That afternoon, I went to lunch at Michael's and Lo and behold, Bill Gates, excuse me, Warren Buffett was two tables away from me. So as I walked out, he's, I said, don't say anything, Warren. I know you love the strawberry milkshakes. I know you want, an, <laughs> I know you want a store in Omaha. I, and we're going to get you a VIP card. Uh, and so when you went into the store in La Jolla afterwards, there was now, they now in top had different sayings. And one of them was Warren Buffett eats here. So that was, that was what they gave him as a prize. Nice. Um, so one of the things that I found really interesting about the book is you're sort of an enigma in many ways. And even after reading the book, I still don't know the answer to those questions. So I thought I would ask you, which is your career choices, especially as an early stage VC, tend to speak to kind of going against the grain. I know exactly what you're right? going to ask me. And, but then I'll, also, you're like a serious member of the New York establishment in many ways, too. Are you? Pro-establishment, anti-establishment, what, oh, what well, are I, you? I thought you were going to ask me, so I'll change it around, because everybody said if you went to Columbia, Columbia is a value-oriented investment firm. Right. You learn how to, you know, discounted cash flows, present value calculations, multiple of EBITDA, assets, and yet you're in the venture capital business. <laughs> that's, that's what I... Well, you know, it's funny, so I, I teach at Columbia Business School, and now, because venture is like the hot thing to work in, that's like a bit mobbed, like that's what everybody wants to so do. So value, the value courses now doesn't have a lot of interest? No one even wants to. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you couldn't get into that course originally. Yeah, I heard that. Uh, uh, am I establishment, anti-establishment? I don't yeah, that's a question, because your, your, your career choices sort of lean a little towards anti, but then, you know, you, you've work with presidents and no, I'm, part of, I'm part of the establishment I, I you know I can't deny it I mean my friends are presidents of companies and and uh, uh, presidents of company of countries right. uh, uh, but I am I really am very much a person of the people. I pride myself in that I really do and there are, anyone who knows me well would attest to that. Uh, I ride the subway to work or bus or walk, which is most of the time, 
I uh, ride primarily, com uh, both entirely commercial, uh, unless some I get lucky once in a while. Uh, my uh, significant other, who I'm getting married to, uh, has this amazing knack. She lives in California. That somehow or other, she gets a ride on a private plane one way or the other. In fact, I think she adjusts her schedule by a day just to get a ride. I never get anyone I know going where I'm going. Uh, but I, uh, I, I ride coach, unless I'm going cross country or Europe. But other than that, I go coach. So I, uh, today I had an interesting incident where <laughs> I was just telling you the story. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I have a Costco buyer. I love their samples. Uh, and uh, I got a call because I'm buying a car and I got a call from the auto dealer and said, by any chance you're a member of Costco? I said, damn it, I let my, my, my membership lapse during COVID. Uh, so I quickly got onto Costco between driving from East Hampton to, uh, to uh, New York City and to uh, Orchard Street. And I got my membership reinstated, so I'm eligible now for this discount. So, I mean, you know, I think, you know, someone who is part of the establishment, who has their own yacht, their own chauffeur, they, they go on their own planes. I don't think they would have made that call to Costco to get their rebate. Yeah, definitely not. I'm, I'm going I'm to give you sort of a 50-50 on that one. <laughs> um, so no, I think I deserve it all. <laughs> so you've made some, some pretty famous media investments, and I think the one that you talk about the most in the book and that you're best known for is you know, helping create New York Magazine. So two questions. One, um, do you still read it, and what do you think of it? And two, if someone's pitching you a media startup, I know primetime doesn't quite focus on that now, but if someone were pitching you a media startup for VC investment, what, what do you need to hear to make it interesting? Well, the answer is I'm not a reader of New York, but it's no reflection of New York. It's I, I read in print the FT, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, and newsletters, primarily Axios, but Politico, uh, The Morning, uh, so I, I am pretty stuffed. I, I do still get Business Week, uh, which I press myself to read because, you know, it just doesn't, it's not as relevant as the old Business Week was, which is owned by Bloomberg, but uh, I still am very loyal to it. Uh, what was your question? <laughs> if, if someone were pitching oh, yeah, you, I mean, me, sorry, yeah. what, I, what do you need to hear? Okay, I, I think it's, I mean, very straightforward. It's almost impossible to get a media deal finance today. Uh, I still love media. Uh, I, I believe that Graycroft, which was my second firm, built its reputation on my media success and, and media that we invested in. You know, uh, we started Graycroft as an internet and media investment firm, which, in the, which was 2006, and we were doing very well, and we attracted anything that happened in the media area. And as a result of that, we invested in the Skim, we invested in Axios, we invested in the Huffington Post, all of which did very, very well. And the last seven or eight investments I made at Graycroft were all media focused on podcasting. Yeah. And we have done very, very well. We invested in Wondery, which is probably the most successful podcast yeah. company. That's what we sold to Amazon. We sold another company to Spotify. We have two hot companies now, Sonoro, 
which is Spanish uh, language focused, and uh, Lemonada, which is focused, really doing very well, focused on women's issues primarily. Uh, so I am a media person. My, I built a lot of my reputation in it. Uh, a lot of the companies I did earlier on in my career, like Audible, was in that media. And uh, I went to Graycroft uh, about a year ago, and I'm now Chairman Emeritus, and I've started Primetime, so I'm not as involved, and I can't push people around. Not that I ever did, but uh, I de never did. I always worked on what the consensus was. But the consensus at Graycroft is they don't want to make a media investment, and, and uh, it's not illogical. Uh, they said, show me an investment in the media business that's exited a billion dollar valuation. Uh, and there are none. I mean, you look at what's happened to BuzzFeed, look at what's happened to, uh, uh, you know, Vox. Uh, you could go down the list. The, great, the greatest exit in media in the last five years, I, I, I don't know, I, can't, I don't want to say 10 because I may have missed something, but certainly the last five years is Axios, which we sold for publicly announced for over $500 million, and that was considered gigantic. Right. Uh, so I can understand when people are paying, playing for exits of 10, 20 billion, uh, uh, why go into an industry where, you know, the chances of making, uh, you know, making an investment and, and, and realizing a big return. I just, you, you can't make Grand Slam hotel runs, home yeah. runs. Um, you talk in the book about kind of VCs that sometimes overstep their bounds or don't quite understand what their role should be. Um, obviously, there's lots of different kinds of VCs who do different things. It, beyond providing capital, what, in your view, does the sort of perfect VC do for the portfolio companies? I think the most important thing a venture capitalist can do for a company that they invest in, uh, without exception, is to get them business. If I, I had a breakfast with a, a company we'd invested in, doesn't need to be named, but successful investment uh, in New York, of a uh, San Francisco company, uh, and he said to me, uh, you, you know, we've got uh, great success, and our two investors are Kleiner Perkins and Graycraft, and he said, I, Kleiner's been very helpful. They're around the corner. They helped us get in software engineers. They helped us with some technology problems. But Graycroft has gotten us 25% of our business. Uh, the hardest thing for a young company is to get access to somebody who is at a level that they can actually make a decision. They can all get access to the, looking at this stairs you have in front of me of people sitting here. They can get access to the bottom row, but it's very hard to get access to the top row, or the, not even the top, the person who makes the decision. So they get stuck. Uh, so I think that's the most important thing. Uh, uh, you know, sure, we can help with the accountant, we can help with governance, we can help with le legal issues, but uh, uh, obviously we can help with financing. That's an important thing. But uh, the reason I made that comment in the book was uh, I think that some venture capitalists uh, don't uh, recognize their place they play and they get out of bounds and they get to th project themselves into the uh, role of managing the company instead of just uh, understanding they're a passive investor and are not 
I, I, they're not supposed to be running it. And I made that comment because we had someone on the board from, uh, this was in my old firm at Apex, who was on the border actually of Johnny Rockets, and I got called by one of the directors. Everything one, tonight will come back to Johnny Rockets. Yeah, I got called, I got called by one of the directors, my fellow director, no, I wasn't on the board. One of the people from our firm was, and he said, you get that effing guy off our board, he's telling the CEO at what temperature to cook the hamburgers. Uh, and I think that, you know, a really good CEO who has an investor who's too aggressive and try to tell them how to run the business will hand them the keys to the door and say, it's your company, now you go and run it. Uh, now, it doesn't happen, but I think you can overstep your bounds and you're, uh, you really have to recognize there is a boundary as an investor as opposed to uh, you know, being an operator. And, but I think there's a frustration, I've had it, and I think anyone in the venture business says, God, if I were running this, I could do it better. Uh, but I, I strongly believe, and I've talked at Primetime, our new firm, many, many times, I don't want to be helping them in every step of the word, every, running the business on a daily or a weekly basis. I want a strong person who can really, you know, say, you play your role, I'll tap into you when I need your resources. I'm running the company and I know how to do it. And that doesn't mean they're autocratic or they're arrogant, but uh, I like CEOs who have confidence because I don't have to worry about it every day. Right. Um, so you've kind of taken businesses from inception through IPO, you've taken funds from the conception of it all the way through raising it and investing the entire amount. What point in the cycle is just the most fun and interesting to you? What? point in the venture business? Yeah, the site, oh, it, Sell, yeah is, is it like when you first invest, make it? Selling an investment at a very big profit. Okay, fair, <laughs> fair, fair enough. It starts with that and it ends with that. Uh, you know, I, I, many times, uh, it happens all the time, the day we make a new investment, everybody wants to literally, figuratively take out the champagne and celebrate. They just close the deal. I, what are you celebrating? I mean, you, you've got now, tomorrow that company's gonna have less money in the bank than it has today, and all you're gonna see is losses for the next year or two. You wanna celebrate when you sell, not when you buy. Uh, so I, I don't get excited in buying. Uh, I like, I think, getting at what stage of, of investment business. Sure. I, well, clearly, I left Apex behind because we were had morphed into a private equity firm, uh, and I really wanted to be in the venture business. So I decided to take a few years off and work on entrepreneurial development around the world. Uh, but then uh, I decided to phase out of Graycroft on a phase four-year phase out because we were getting big. We had you know, started with a few people. We now were up to 60, 70. We now had a, uh, a, uh, a, a H, not an HR person. We now had two, two or three HR people. And it was, at this stage of my life, I really didn't want to be in operating meetings and review uh, uh, people's performance and write up their performance and things like that. And so I decided I'd phase out. And then I got excited by a new area 
that's what turned me on of new area of investing. Yeah, talk, talk a little about prime time and the thesis. Well, uh, I had been reading a lot about the fact that we have an aging population. I, looking at this audience, I'm glad to see it's not an aging population. Although I have been giving a couple of these talks at senior living facilities, which have been very well received, uh, uh, which I didn't expect. But I, uh, I think that uh, if you read enough now, and then with Biden running, aging is like, you know, every day in the paper, and being attacked. Uh, frankly, they don't attack. Trumpford, he's only a few years younger, but uh, pointing out all his the frailties that he had. And so that was one aspect. Uh, the other part, as I say, is looking at population figures. By 2030, I believe it is, there'll be more people over 60 than there'll be under 18. And you could read about the number of people 100 now. And you can read about, uh, there was just someone who came out uh, recently, David Sinclair from Harvard, saying there's someone alive today who's going to live to 150. Uh, I personally am going to live to 114. Uh, if you read the book and you finish it, you'll probably believe me. And maybe after tonight, you'll believe me. Uh, it's, it has to do with mindset. Uh, and I am convinced that's why I'm getting married again. I'm going to have a 26-year marriage. Unfortunately, only 26 years. Uh, uh, I wish it could be longer. Uh, but. Uh, so if you add it all up, fastest growing part of the population, people growing, you know, 50% of the kids over, born since 2004, I believe, are going to live to be over 100. Uh, it's a big market. They have more money to spend, big Rolodexes. And uh, so that was an influence. Then I had a friend who was in his early 60s who, who was in a forced retirement because of the firm's policy that you had to retire at 62. I think they've raised it now to 65. But I said, this is crazy. This guy is so good. Why, why is he leaving? It turned out he left and became general counsel of a very famous company and made more money as general counsel in about five years than he had made his entire legal career. So it worked out well for him. But uh, my own firm, Apex, has a rule it didn't apply to me because I left in my 70s, but you must retire from Apex at 60, and they enforce it. And the whole concept is to make room for younger people, but at the same time, you lose a lot of your brain trust. So uh, I, uh, I got very excited, and um, I had been talking about it, reading about it, and my, one of my sons said to me, you know Abby Levy, who was the forming president of Thrive Global, Ariana's Huffington's company, of which I made the investment. That's another media company. I was on the board of that for Graycroft. And I thought she was fabulous. And he said, she's just as focused, if not more, than you are. She started personally investing in companies servicing the aging business. And she's going to start a fund. So two days later, we had breakfast. And a week later, we formed Primetime Partners. Yeah. And uh, we're now just celebrated our third anniversary. And I just came from a retreat for, for our team is now Abby, myself, and a principal and an associate. Nice. So obviously, you've gotten a lot done in, in your career, and there's a lot more still to come. And you say in the book, I avoid putting off till tomorrow what I can do today. Why doesn't everybody do that? 
now you, you've asked me the question, which I, is usually the first question I'd asked, but I'm asking in a different way. It's okay. the same, I'm gonna give you the same answer. All right. Why did I call the book No Red Lights? Yeah. Uh, I called it No Red Lights because figuratively, as our associate was just telling everybody today, you don't wanna walk down Madison Avenue with Alan because you're taking your life in your hands. <laughs> I really don't pay attention to red lights. Uh, I, I jaywalk very bad. I've never been arrested, but you're, it, it's tough to keep up with me. And this is a fellow who's 28. It's hard to keep up with me walking, even at my advanced age. Uh, and I do not pay attention. But in addition, it, to me, it signified uh, how I've lived my life. Uh, no red lights was to reflect that I am sick of people who say, I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, my own fiance the other day said something to me. She's getting a lot of credit here today. But she said something about doing it. I said, let's do it now. Get on the phone and call the person. What are we waiting for? Till It was on Friday. Till Monday? I mean, there's no point to it. And then we did another call that was being put off. And by the time we'd finished, we got three people, three things done that would have normally taken another three or four days. Everybody wants to put off till tomorrow. So... But it's not just putting off things, that, that's part of it. But it's also not letting, uh, not living with boundaries, not stopping, uh, moving ahead, thinking positively, wake up every day with the word yes, don't think about the word no, find reasons to do things, not, not to do them. You know, like lawyers find reasons not to do it. Yep. They, they're always accused of that. Find a lawyer who figures out how to do it. And I have done a lot of things that are beyond just venture capital. Well, I'm most well known for venture capital. I've done a lot of things. I've invested in the art business. I've invested in the theater. I collect classic cars. I spent four years, uh, as in five years, as the advisor to the president of Nigeria. And I have no business in Nigeria. I just uh, got the opportunity and jumped on it. And I think that uh, I feel badly for young people particularly who sit and do you know spreadsheets all day and go home you know at 10 11 o'clock at night and uh, what maybe they watch television or people who are doing legal briefs all night or whatever it is I think you have to smell the flowers find reasons to do things do things outside your bounds uh, and if you're older try new things you know write a book uh, uh, become a poet, uh, open a bookstore, but you're too young and you're, you don't fit that category, but open a bookstore. I, I know of someone who has opened a bookstore, uh, uh, who runs the East Hampton bookstore, who's, I believe, I'm certain she's over 60, but she did that as a new career late in her life. Right. Um, you mentioned Audible. What's before? your next career gonna be? Well, I have a novel coming out in November, so oh, wow. uh, ho hopefully are novels. You gonna, are you going to sit here and people good. are going to be stacked up? Uh, I don't know if anyone's going to show up, but <laughs> I, I will, I'll be sitting here, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Audible, you mentioned Audible before, and one of the things you wrote about, you were talking about kind of the, the, the tech kind of boom and bust in, in the early 2000s, was that their first quarter revenue in 1999 was $315,000, and that got them a $225 million valuation. Is that... Was that the most irrational market you've ever seen, or, or no, did we come close no, to that we again? Lived, we lived through it last year. We just uh, plowed through it. Insane. That's why there are a lot of funds that are 
having to mark to the market right now uh, in the first quarter. It was like an accident waiting to happen. And there were a lot of companies that were started up in the last couple of years that sadly won't be around a couple of years from now. The ones who are fortunate enough to raise enough money to have running room, you have to wait till they run out of the money. But I think there were a lot of companies that have been founded in the last few years that are not backed by people who really have a passion in what they're doing or have experience in it uh, or motivate a team or are capable of motivating a team. And they were able to get money at any price. Uh, uh, we were talking about a deal today that we're in at too high a price. Uh, and we, I'll tell you the specific. We had, we had offered a $30 million valuation and it was done at 60. And we put a little bit of money in and we were talking about how did it get to 60? Because one of the major funds who had money to splash around offered them $60 million and we liked the company, but we're never going to make a venture return. Right. And, and is that because venture funds have raised way too much money and then as a result, in order to deploy the capital, they've got to just pay, they almost have to deploy it at high valuations to get rid of it? Or like, why, why is this happening? Or why I think this that's happen? part of it. I think there have been too many growth funds, not, not seed funds or stuff. They're more rational and controlled because they have a limited amount of money and, right. and they are doing seed investments. But there are lots of growth funds around who've migrated down market and put money in so they'll establish a toehold. And they can't, it's not worthwhile for them to invest less than a certain amount of money. And then you have a lot of hedge funds who've gotten into the venture business. And uh, there's a general, there was a general excitement uh, going back a few years of, you know, startups and, uh, you know, it, when everyone gets excited, prices get, you know, inflated and uh, you have to live through the consequences. And uh, I think uh, it's not going to be as cataclysmic. The worst was 19, 2000. 2000 1999 to 2001 were terrible. Uh, that was, things were insane. Uh, and they, when uh, many, many companies failed. Uh, I think the failures today will be quieter. Uh, there may be more, but they'll be over a longer period of time. Right, and they'll just go away. Right, everyone has so much runway. Um, so right now we're in a period where there's very little both M&A and IPOs you know, for startups. Uh, when do you think a period of liquidity returns? Well, when we uh, get through this phase that I'm talking about and uh, these companies are digested and out of it, are, I mean, there are gonna be some good companies. That are, I hope we have some in prime time. I know we have some in, uh, in Greycroft. We just went public with a company that we started uh, in 2008. Uh, and uh, yes, that is 15, 15 years later. It's hard to believe uh, uh, that sold for a very, very, very good price, but it took 15 years. I mean, no one said, you know, people think ventures or venture is going to give them a quick return. I mean, uh, uh, you know, if you're in the startup business, as I am, you're not really in startups. You're more advanced, right? No, we're CDNA. CDNA, okay. Yeah. Uh, you're making investments all along the, the spectrum of time. So we've been in business three years. Our half-life of our investment 
In other words, the average length of time we've held it is about a year and a half. And the average length of life of the f companies we have is probably two years. So, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. It takes a long time to build a, a company, a solid company. So uh, I think that uh, we have to get through this period and see which ones are going to make it. Yeah. So y you've done a ton of political fundraising and, and been sort of very engaged in, in politics kind of across the board. Um, Who's your favorite politician that you've worked with and raised money for? And is there anyone that you supported that you regret supporting them? Hands down, the best politician is Bill Clinton. There's no one even close. Uh, I adore Hillary. She's really, really good. But as a politician, you know, Bill Clinton, uh, how many here have, have ever met Bill Clinton personally? Well, if you met him, you know when you meet him, he looks straight in your eye, puts your arms around his sho your shoulder, right? And uh, talks to you and answers what you're talking about directly. And if he's gonna say he's gonna follow up something, he follows it up. Uh, he's an amazing politician. He, uh, uh, he could have been president for life as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, and Hillary is not as politically savvy as he is, but she's equally smart. Uh, who I regret, uh, I like him as, uh, uh, I'm gonna even forget who it is. Uh, um, God, who am I? My memory's good. The general. Uh, oh, um, Wesley Clark? Yeah, Wesley, Wesley Clark, who I like a lot, who's very good. I think as a political candidate, uh, I don't think he was, you know, uh, you know, he, faded out in the primaries. So t typically the people who raise the kind of money that you raise end up as an ambassador or a commerce secretary. Why didn't that interest you? I, I, I'm very honest, I, I, I don't bullshit. I, I didn't want to leave New York. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the life I lead. I like being around my grandchildren, my children. I like being in the venture capital business. I really didn't want to move to Washington, and I have been to enough embassy dinners, private dinners in embassies around the world that I, I mean, the one that really did me in was Denmark, where I went there, uh, I got there late in the day, and I was the guest of honor at dinner, and there were about 15 or 20 people, and these were 20 people I had no interest in, and I, I said, oh my God, if I'm the ambassador here, and all they talked about was going hunting the next day, shooting, shooting. And I said, I don't want to shoot. I don't want to hunt. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, play golf with them. Uh, it, that's what you have to do. Uh, uh, now, I've known a lot of people who've been very good at ambassadors and have been very effective. Our ambassador right now is a good friend of mine, the one at the Court of St. James, who, a woman, who was also formerly the ambassador of France, and we visited her both times, and she's really dealt with very substantive issues, and uh, and she's accepts uh, living over there. Her husband commutes. Uh, I I just wasn't in my but I but I did want something. I did want to be involved in Washington, so I made it very clear 
with, during the Clinton administration, during the Obama administration, and during the President uh, Biden administration, I wanted to be on a board or a commission or something that would involve me going down to Washington five or six times a year. Not that I wouldn't go more, but I wanted to have a reason to go down and be part of a, as I say, and so I am now on the board of something called CIPIC, which is the Securities Investors Protection Corporation, which is what protects investors in stock, in, the, in, the, in their uh, stock account, as opposed to the FDIC, which protects your bank account. And they did, the, they did for example, the whole uh, recovery of the Madoff's Madoff yeah. situation and the Lehman situation. And, you know, I don't know where we'll go with crypto and whether it will become a security. And if it, the securities firms, they'll, they'll be responsible for those, any, anything that happens there. So it's an interesting group to be involved in. And it takes me to Washington five or six times a year. And once they have one meeting in New York, actually. Yeah, you can, you can host them. So you supported President Biden um, in 2020 and, and were very helpful to him. How are you feeling about 2024? Well, I'm not as active in this campaign as I was in the last one, and it has nothing to do with age. Uh, in fact, I'm a good poster child for the campaign, uh, uh, being uh, a lot older than he is and still pretty active. Uh, as those of you who don't know, I. I walked and jogged the marathon last year. Uh, so I keep pretty active. Uh, I, I, I've been less active. Uh, I'm not as excited about the campaign, although I'm excited about beating Donald Trump. I think that that should be the first on all of our agendas to, to solve that problem. Uh, but I... Uh, I just haven't gotten myself revved up, and uh, I I do think he's being tarnished with the concept of ageism. I think he's been very very effective. Yeah. I mean, he's the legislation he's passed has been phenomenal uh, from you know from start from start to finish, uh, better than probably better than Clinton or Obama did in terms of getting legislation passed, getting jobs, re increasing productivity, doing stuff for underprivileged. I mean, he does everything. I think he's been very good. I just haven't gotten myself, uh, I'm not fundraising, and uh, uh, I don't want to invite it, but I, so far I haven't been badgered to contribute. But I, 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 I will. I suspect that will change. <laughs> what? I yeah. suspect yeah. at some point yeah. someone might ask. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask my last question, because I know the audience has questions too, and then... Uh, but I've got more that we can get to. So you've lived this incredibly fascinating and full life, right? You, it worked so far, right? There's still another 26 years to go. Um, and it's all kind of detailed in the book. And you've had success and failure. But one of the things that I like about the book is that you're pretty open and transparent about both, as opposed to just sort of pretending that everything was always perfect. So looking back on 88 years of life and success and failure and everything else, what do you think drives happiness? Uh, being with a partner that you care a lot about, that helps. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think that contributes a lot. Um, enjoying what you do, getting up every day and enjoying going to work. I, I, I think I say in the book, when you uh, go to work and you start seeing the colors of the walls, 
getting, you know, closing in around you and, and the paint color boring around, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it may be time to leave and do something else. Uh, I think happiness is living an interesting life and uh, I live a life like I have. Read my book. Uh, you know, pra I have to say to you, it's not going to become a, a saying around the world, but I have heard more people say, I'm walking, I'm practicing no red lights, no red lights, you know, which means to me that they're saying they're opening up and doing interesting things, trying to do. I really had a lot of people say, they're they doing more interesting things. I had a, a, I've gotten a lot of comments. Of course, no one said gives you a bad comment, but I've had a lot of people write me and stop me and talk to me. I got several today uh, uh, about liking the book, but I had one uh, comment from someone who lives in my building who's a little younger, he's 80, but he's lived in my build, apartment building for 40 years, and he's a member of the New York Stock Exchange. And he was walking into the building one day just recently, and he said, I loved your book, I loved your book, I got it for my children, I sent it to a whole bunch of friends that they should read it. He said, the only thing I'm depressed about is I wish I had read it 20 years ago. And that to me was probably the best comment of anyone, which was saying he's led a bordering life. <laughs> and uh, uh, although I think he's happy, uh, I, I think he's happy, but you know, uh, I'm happy. Uh, all right, to the audience. Who's got questions? There's no two ways that this is not audible, right? Yeah. 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 But you want to buy the book here. You don't. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I can't Much, much better to buy PT Nowhere. Much better. He's a, Brad sells books. I mean, you know, he's got other things to do. He does this because he loves books and he loves. Well, he's a venture capitalist, but he. This is a passion. This, is, this I assume, gives him happiness. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed. having you all here today makes him happy. How happy! It would make you. me even happier if you all bought a lot of books. But yes, <laughs> if you don't buy books, he's not going to be around and not long enough to have the next session. Yeah, well, as, as long as as long as we get back to some liquidity inventor, I'm, I'm okay with this one. Yeah. But uh, so, moderator, great questions. I'm surprised you didn't ask specifically on the current market landscape, which would be like AI ML companies. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll give you a comment, and then Brad should answer that question too, because he probably has a more uh, technological erudite. My concern is, I let me start this way. I have been involved with, I call them revolutions, whatever you want, but I was there at the uh, Bain frame. I was there at PC revolution. I, as you know, I started out, was an early investor at Apple. I was there the first mass retailing with Office Depot. I was there in the storage, when storage business came in. I started actually the first cellular company in 1983 or four, I can't remember, you have to look in the book, uh, uh, which I called a revolution. I was there at the internet revolution. Uh, and I, I'm probably forgetting a couple of others on the way. Uh, uh, it'll come back to me, but uh, to me, the. AI revolution is probably the most important, the most significant uh, that I've been part of. It's going to have more implication than anything else. And, you know, if you think about the implication of cell phones, when I invested in cell phones, the original projection at that day was by AT&T to Motorola that there would be an 
ultimately a 2% penetration and Today, it's probably close to 100% penetration. And 96 was the last time. Last time 96 was the last data I saw. Okay, yeah, so pretty close. Because uh, some people have two, that's why. But in terms of AI, I mean, what's happened in six months is, is, is astounding. I mean, the number of people who've signed on to chat GPT, including me, uh, uh, is, is, is amazing. And what it can do, it, the capabilities are just. I, I'm in awe. However, in terms of investing, you know, people have to understand AI is a tool. It is not the end. So it's only how you apply it and what you do with it as a tool that is going to influence. So in effect, almost every company you invest in has to be thinking about it and has to be thinking of ways it can improve productivity in their business and open new opportunities. You know, for example, you know, biotech trials. You know, instead of taking 10 years, maybe they'll take two years. And maybe instead of taking, you know, so much money, they'll take less money because they can do process uh, uh, formulas that much faster. Uh, uh, and you can take it, you know, with the education, but you can learn what the, what the access you get for information that's there and assembling it. It's, it's astounding. So, uh, but on the other hand, there has been a rush to put money in, just like there was in crypto, uh, you know, five years ago, and everybody was putting money in. A lot of people lost money, and I think that you're—it's uh, impossible that these values that have been established can all survive. And uh, so there will be losses, but there are going to be some. But the, the ones that are going to win in AR are the ones who are developing tools. Uh, so I think it's very important for all of us, and it's going to affect all of our lives in every area. I have two questions. One is, I want to know how do I look like you when I'm 88? I can tell you what I do. It's not. Please. I walk every place. I didn't walk here today, but that's because I was covering the country. But I walked four miles this morning. Uh, I so I walk every place I can. I uh, eat normal. Uh, I have learned over the last couple of years that we get served too much at our dinner meals. So I have trained people who eat with me, mainly my fiance, that we split every dinner. I believe me, I think it has more significance than anything else I do because we never go home hungry, I can guarantee you. But the portions are so gigantic. So think about it, if you cut your dinner in half every night, if you have the ability to do that, I, uh, I have a very positive attitude. I double and triple book everything I do at night, so I keep going. Uh, I keep active in business, uh, and uh, I weigh myself twice a day. I weigh myself when I get up in the morning, and I weigh myself at night, and if I gain more than two pounds, I skip a meal the next day. Uh, so. You know, I, uh, I, between all those things, I probably have left something out, but I, uh, I don't count calories. I probably should. And the second question was, um, having been in the business for so long in venture, what do you say is like unique skill set that an investor needs to have? You know, I'm sure you've seen plenty of people come through this business too. So. Uh, I think you have to be uh, a curious person. If you're not curious, this is definitely the wrong business to be in. I think you 
should pay meticulous attention to details and not be sloppy. Uh, Steve Jobs said to me once, the last question you ask probably will be the most important in any meeting, so stay the extra 10 minutes. Uh, uh, I, uh, I think that uh, you have to be able to have a good personality, I think, to attract entrepreneurs. I mean, entrepreneurs, they do have choices where they can get money. Money is a fungible item, so I think you have to be someone who makes an entrepreneur feel comfortable. But I think you have to have good skills at picking out leaders, uh, uh, because a good leader will figure out the product end of it uh, sooner or later and survive. But if you have a good product and no one to you know, do something with it, you know, I, I, it doesn't happen so much anymore, but all, I don't know, Brad, if you get this, people come in to you and say, uh, you have to sign an NDA before I'm gonna give it to you. I'm afraid you're gonna steal the idea. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't sign, we don't sign an idea. Well, I'll tell you the truth, we do sign it, but it's our version of an NDA, so it's not an NDA that you could do anything with. But I say to them, you don't realize by asking to sign an NDA, you are slowing the process down. You, you, you could do everything. No one's gonna steal. I've never ever, in 52 years of this business, I've never ever heard of a venture capitalist stealing someone's idea. Because it goes back to what are they gonna do with it? They don't know how to operate the business. They don't know how to, they don't know the field. So it, it's a waste of time. So I, uh, just like patents are a waste of time unless you have the money to to, to uh, protect them. Uh, I think, you know, you, you have to pick people and you want to pick markets that are growing fast enough and companies that uh, have some unique feature that enables them to survive in the very competitive world. Um, companies in the past few years have spent a lot of time doing purpose and ESG type work. Do you think that that makes a difference for startups? And do you think, like, what's the future of that? Well, you're asking what I think of ESG, really. Uh, uh, I don't think it makes a difference in their perform better or worse performance, no. But I th think that it's, it's debatable. Uh, my ex-partner, uh, Sir Ronald Cohn, who's written a book, uh, two books actually, is probably one of the leading factors of the world today on sustainable ESG type investments and believes in it very strongly. And there's recently debates have risen from, you know, financing sources, pension funds and foundations of saying your objective is to make money, you know, not to diffuse it with other, uh, other aspects that don't end up with, you know, financial results. Uh, I think we all have to be conscious of the environment. We have to be conscious of doing good things, I mean, uh, uh, I think we, we are investing in aging people who are, you know, dealing with this market. We think we're doing something that's really ESG dealing with, because there aren't that many people investing in things that serve the elderly. Uh, but we have a strong profit motive. I don't think it helps your earnings. Uh, it may help make some of your investors happier that they can you can check the box that these are people are. Uh, I think one of the things that they're talking about is having a balance sheet, an additional financial balance sheet, 
having actual, and there are some companies who are doing it already, that have a balance sheet which are equating what you contribute to the environment and what you take away from the environment and doing a parallel type of balance sheet. And you could end up in deficit or profit or income statement. So one of the reasons We've why- We've known each other a long time. A long, a long time. One of the reasons I come to things like this, I could listen to the podcast, I could read what you have to say, I could read the book, but there's something about seeing people in person and listening to them and what they care about and where they pause and how they process things that for me gives me an inside track on data that I don't get any other way. Starting about six months ago, I started listening to these talks that Barack Obama's been giving. He gave a talk at Stanford, then he gave a talk in Chicago at the Atlantic Conference, then he gave one at the Javits Center. Big, long, hour-long talks, different in lots of ways, but there was a theme in the middle of all three of them where he pauses and then gets concerned and then gets anxious and talks specifically about social media and its impact on democracy. And you can see, I said to someone who knows him, he's not a very good poker player in this stuff. I mean, he looks deeply, deeply concerned without, without like a, we should push this button to fix it. Do you think at all about social media and its impact on democracy? Yeah, I, I think it's a real, it's a real problem. I mean, I, you know, in section section two thirty and the debate that's going on is a is a critical one. And uh, uh, I, I can, honestly can see both sides, though. I mean, it's really tough to protect. Uh, uh, I, I'll I'm going to tell you a side story. Do we have time for a funny story? Uh, the other. Night, week ago, two weeks, that made a difference. Yesterday, that made a difference. Uh, uh, someone made a Jewish e expression, and I, a Yiddish expression, and I said, I'm going to go to ChatGPT and say, ask them for, give me a list of 50 uh, Yiddish expressions. And in a nanosecond, I got 50. And I said, give me 50 Jewish words, Yiddish, Yiddish. I, can't, I keep, there's a difference between Jewish and Yiddish. Yiddish words, and I got 50 Yiddish words. And I said, give me 10. Yiddish jokes, and I got 10 jokes. And I said, God, isn't this incredible? I mean, what you could get out of chat GPT. So about an hour later, I was going to dinner, and I wanted to tell the jokes, at least one or two of them, because I couldn't remember them. So I asked the same, please send me 10 Yiddish jokes. And I get an answer back from chat GPT, which says, I'm sorry, we do not give any ethnic or racial <laughs> answers to questions. And uh, by the way, I go try it tonight. They somehow it got through. I got through. Yeah, or, or you and never set again. off the alarms that change the policy. Never again. But uh, I made me think of that in terms of it. It's not exactly social media, but in a way it is. I mean, you could do a lot of damage today with you know uh, saying things that that you don't get caught on. That, that I guess that's why I brought it up. They caught. I didn't do any harm, but they were catching and saying, we don't want these kind of uh, things to occur on ChatGPT, so they have a filter of some sort. Uh, I think it's a tough problem, and uh, a lot of reputations, a lot of kids particularly have been bullied and, and uh, hurt by people, you know, kids doing things to each other. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a real concern. And I, don't, I don't know how, unfortunately, the genie may be out of the bag, out of the box. All right, we have time for one more. You're so inspiring. First of all, my dad can give you 20 Yiddish jokes, so I'll connect you tomorrow, oi. Send me the list, will okay, you Okay, I'll send you the list, oi. 
Um, but my question is, how do you triple book? What's the secret? How do I triple? Oh. Yeah, because I can't even double book. Are you the person who asked me that before yeah, I came yeah. in? I've been waiting all night. <laughs> uh, you want my, the secret is every, every invitation you get, it's not a trick. I mean, it's just how do you manage to do it? Is almost everything you get invited to, you can't, it depends on when you get invited. But most things go from five to eight or nine at night. So if you're lucky enough and something is five to seven and something is six to eight, or it's something is, let's say six to nine, and if you, whatever that combination, you can figure out how you can go in the front door of the first one so that your host knows you were there. Leave out the back door, because you don't want to say goodbye. You just leave. You go to the second one. The only problem you run into, which I have run into, is when two of them may be six to seven. Then, because you've got to get someplace. You've got to get from one place to another. But if you figure out your night, uh, and I, 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 I had something uh, oh, it's coming up in September. I was invited to make a talk, uh, and it was impossible. I just couldn't, there was no way I could change the, the thing I had previously. This was going to be 6.30, to, I, they started 6.30, 6.30, 8.30, and I had a 6 to 8 at an event that I had to go to, so there was no way I was going to get to a speaking event at 6.30. All right, Alan, thank you so much for doing this and for joining us. And you're going to stay and sign some books? What? Will you stay and sign yeah, some books definitely for people? Definitely sign books. Definitely. All right. Great. All right. Come on down and meet, meet him in person. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.